So 74,000 a year. 63,568. Yeah, 3494 an hour for my W2 position, $55 an hour for my acute PRN position. Now I make $37 an hour. Um, that's after several raises. I am making $49 an hour for the 1099. Hello, I'm Megan Berg. And I'm Dr. Jeanette Benegas. And we're two SLPs on a mission to arm our colleagues with the knowledge they need to increase their pay and help elevate our field as a whole. Wage stagnation continues to be one of the major issues plaguing the field of SLP, and we are here to bring transparency around this issue. Each episode, we interview SLPs and ask direct questions about money so that all of us can use that information to better negotiate our salaries. If you're curious about what other SLPs make and want to know what you can do to make sure you don't get caught in the trap of never being paid what you're worth, this is the show for you. Okay, so our guests today would like to remain anonymous, and we are going to use a random name generator for unisex names to give our guest a name. So I'm going to click spin. Okay. All right. Today, your name is Addison. We have Addison joining us today. She's going to talk to us today about what, Megan? Megan. We're going to talk about all kinds of things, but the reason, Addison, that we were interested in talking to you is because you have successfully no negotiated a stipend as a bilingual SLP, and I think that's a skill set that is highly undervalued in our field, and bilingual therapists often get taken advantage of because it's seen as like just this thing, the skill that you happen to have, and like you might as well use it in your job if you can, whereas it's a skill that should be compensated because you're able to serve a wider range of people and provide therapy that's appropriate to people who speak different languages. So that's really why we want to talk to you, but we also want to just hear your story. I know you've switched jobs recently and all of that. So you have a lot of insight and experience to share, but before we get into all that, let's just kind of start off with like generally where you live as comfortable as you want to, or as you are to share what region or city or state or just generally where you live. Yeah. I live in the Houston general area in a suburb of the Houston general area. Um, and I've worked throughout the Houston area, like many areas. Um, so I've worked like in Houston and I've worked in a South suburb of Houston and then also like a Northern suburb of Houston too. Okay. And then how do you find, how do you define your race? I'm Latina. And how do you define your gender? Female. Okay. And then what setting do you work in? So for right now, I still work in the school setting, um, but I just took a job in the private setting, um, a clinic. Is that private pediatrics or? Yes, PD. Yeah, all PD. I've always only done PD. Um, that's my jam. So um, I fully identify as a PD SLP. Is that what, is that, is that the preferred label? 
PDSLP? I've never heard that. No, I don't know. Pediatrics. I, I just like people refer to themselves like, oh, I'm a PDSLP. And I'm like, yeah, me too. I'm a PDSLP. I don't know. It's just like, I love working with kids. It's more fun. I tried the adult thing and it's just not for me. <laughs> um, I, I would, I actually, I did enjoy it when I got to use the bilingual aspect of it. Like at one of my clinical practicums, I did do um, therapy with some bilingual afa- like aphasia. Um, that was fun, but just generally, I enjoy pediatrics more. Mm-hmm. And why did you switch from school to private practice? Oh, it was a tough decision. I've been in the schools for a long time, like eight years. Um, I was an SLP assistant first and then became an SLP. Um, and I think I had this like really great perspective of what my job was going to be like and and how happy I would be (laughs) because as an SLP assistant I was super happy in the schools all I did was therapy and so I worked with kids I would say 90 to 80 percent of the time I was face to face with kids um, and I got to work with them consistently and I didn't have to do IEP meetings and I didn't have to do paperwork and I didn't have to do Medicaid billing and COSIFs and all this craziness that like you have to do once you're the case manager, right? So um, I became an SLP. I I went through a program in Texas um, where you can go to school and um, work at the same time. Um, this is through Texas Women's University. I say that because if you are a school SLPA, go to Texas Women's University. They It's a wonderful program. Um, you can work and go to school at the same time if you have a job already. Um, so I did that. And um, then I became, I became a full-time SLP in the schools. And it's like I got hit with a ton of bricks. Like it was not as much face-to-face with the kids anymore. I was juggling a lot of different roles. I'm billing. I'm the secretary making the IEP meeting appointments. Um, My very first year as a CF, I was doing it all. And um, I was a CF, so I was new to being an SLP. So it was so overwhelming the first year. The caseload was large. It was um, started off at 75 and then grew throughout the year. Um, It was just, it was so much the first year. And my district, I, I will say they were very like, cognizant of what was going on. So they got me help. Um, like halfway through the year, I, they were able to find somebody to come in and help me the second half of the year um, with like two days of therapy and helping with some evaluations. But it's still so much like being so new, you know, um, and I was doing all the bilingual stuff, which part of the workload with a bilingual um, caseload or, or set of kids is that you have to test in both languages. So an eval is taking twice the amount of time. You have to translate documents. I mean, you don't have to legally, but ethically, I feel like I want the parents to read the documents that they're being given and understand them in the language that they are most dominant in. So I write my report in English. And then luckily the system that the district used, it translates some stuff to Spanish. Um, but not everything. Like I, I have to run it through um, some kind of like the templates I run through Google. I have it already translated, so I use that. Um, but I do provide the parents like a Spanish copy. So you know, I'm doing all these things that I think the quality of of care matters when you're working um, as a therapist in general. 
And I think when you're not providing the family, the child, like everything involved with the most dominant language, you're not providing quality care anymore because suddenly that monolingual family is getting to understand every single thing you wrote in that report and the bilingual family is not. So if you're not giving them a Spanish report, that to me is not quality care. So I take the time to do all these things, right? Which is double the, it's double the work. I've been writing it in English. I'm writing it in Spanish. I'm calling the parent to explain it all. And then also the cultural differences that sometimes you encounter. Um, and just like lack of knowledge, like because they're new to the country um, and these services don't exist a lot of the times in their home countries. And so they don't know how this works. They don't know how special ed works. Um, and so, you know, explaining all of that and having these conversations and then um, testing in both languages um, and then the analysis that it takes to decipher between the two. Um, I got an extra certificate to be a bilingual speech language pathologist through Texas Women's. Um, it's like an, an uh, kind of like a post-bac certificate that you get while you're doing your master's. So you're taking extra coursework to understand um, how to analyze the different, like for our tick, phonemes, like in each language. How do you do a comparative analysis, language um, aspects? grammar, like what are some of the typical errors that a new language learner of Vietnamese would make versus a Spanish would make versus, um, you know, all these different dialects that you would come across in the Houston area. We come across those a lot. Um, and knowing how to analyze and break that down and then actually doing it takes time, you know. So all of these things you know, I was juggling all the roles and then all of these aspects of being a bilingual SLP um, and being a CF. It was just so much in one year. Um, I gave it one more shot another year and it was just, I just felt like it wasn't getting better. And so I decided that, um, I was missing that feeling that I had when I was an assistant where I got to work with kids and make a difference in their lives and really focus on that connection and that development. Um, instead of, spending so much time doing the paperwork to get to do that. You know, it just felt like, what am I doing? You know, like, why am I doing this? Um, and that's to say, like, I, I really did enjoy, and I do enjoy working in the schools. I just wish the caseloads weren't so large. And I wish there weren't so many little, like, paper. I, fe I felt like I was a secretary. So much of my time was spent doing paperwork. Um, that it was making me really unhappy and feeling really unfulfilled. Um, and that's why I left. So um, that's a really roundabout way where I talk about a lot of things. But um, I left because I didn't feel like I could manage it all and do a good job, um, do a quality job. Um, and I'm just not okay with that. At the end of the day, when I get home, I it weighs on me a lot. I feel like I failed my students, like I failed the families, like I failed myself. It just didn't feel good for me anymore. We have many sponsors to thank for making this podcast possible. In the spirit of money transparency, we want you to know that each sponsor has contributed $250 for their ad spot. Half of this goes to our episode guests and the other half goes to Nishla in order to encourage students to listen in and gain the knowledge they need to negotiate their first SLP jobs. Have you caught yourself daydreaming about starting an adult-focused private practice? 
Do you have a passion for serving individuals living with dementia and other neurocognitive disorders? Are you feeling stuck on how to start, billing, marketing, and everything in between? This is Jesse Hillock, owner and founder of The Memory Compass. I am a speech-language pathologist turned dementia family coach and dementia consultant, serving individuals and their families across the U.S. who are navigating a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, dementia, or Alzheimer's. I also support other SLPs who share in my dreams of becoming the go-to dementia specialist within their own community. Be sure to visit my website, thememorycompass.com, to learn more about my Dementia Support Services Guidebook for SLPs, and follow me over on Instagram at thememorycompass. Send me a DM to say hello and let me know that you heard me here on this podcast. I felt that way when I was in the schools too. I was in the schools for two years. And I, um, just to put a little spin on that though, one thing that a, a colleague had said to me when I expressed that to her many years ago, I mean, we're talking over a decade. So this feeling still exists. Mm-hmm. She said, I feel the same way, but I also take the viewpoint that I might be the only one helping these kids. Yeah. And so yeah. my, my little piece, even if I feel like it isn't enough, might be all they get. And I was like, right. wow, that's amazing. I still left the schools in ultimately for <laughs> medical, but um, yeah, I thought that was like, you're right. Still wasn't for me. So that was an interesting little spin. Yeah. Yeah. Including your CFN, how many years have you been working in the field? Um, so as an SLP, this is my technically my with CF and this year it's two years, two years. Um, but I was an SLP assistant from 2015 to 2021. So that's like six years. So total of eight years working in the field. Mm -hmm. Um, And I did, before I did the schools, I did home health. Um, Then I went to the schools um, and I did, I loved it. I loved those, those five, six years that I was there in the schools. I I did love it. I was very happy. Um, But like I said, the the shift happened when I became the full-time responsible for the whole caseload, all the things that was when I was like, this is just a lot. (laughs) How much were you making at the school and and how did you negotiate your stipend? So I was at, so the district that I've started as an SLP at is the, is a different district from the one that I was working at as an SLPA. So I came in with, um, the years of experience from 2015, um, well, really they counted my, so both districts counted my home health experience as years of experience. So they allowed me to count those and credited those years. So it was like, I want to say it was two years of experience in home health. So they setting. have a, they have a scale where you come in and you kind yes. of find yourself on the spreadsheet. You're not negotiating. Exactly. No, it's you're not negotiating. You're finding where you fit in. Um, and that specific district automatically gave a stipend for being bilingual. Um, so I'm like new out of school, left home health, going to the schools. Um, and at this time it was like 2016. So it was when Medicaid cuts started happening and places stopped doing salaries and they started paying you per session. So I was going, going from that to a very um, like secure kind of salary place. And they were paying me for the experience that I had. And I actually got a pay raise when I moved to the 
to the school setting from being a home health SLPA um, because they gave me credit for my year, for my two years of experience. And then they also gave me credit for being bilingual. So they gave me a stipend. Um, and I think, oh, I can't remember how much I started at, but I ended after five years there. I ended at about 56, 57, somewhere around there. Um, that includes the stipend? That included the stipend, yeah, and the yeah, years of experience. 56 or $57 an hour? No, 56000 a year. Okay, sorry. 56000 a year, yeah. Um, and that included benefits. And of course, like you pay into the retirement and all of that. So you you add your years for that. Um, really great health benefits, really great dental vision. Um, I would get 10 PTO days a year. And of course, all the holidays that you got with the kids. So, I mean, for an SLP assistant, that was, I think that was pretty fair and pretty good. Um, okay, so that was your SLP salary. SLP assistant. And then I got my master's and I moved to a new district. So they gave me credit for my home health experience and my SLPA experiences in the school setting that I used to be in. So I think my situation's different because I came in with, I want to say seven years or six years of service already. Right. So like kind of taking that into account that like, I didn't just come in new grad. Like I came in, they gave me credit for all these years that I had. Um, so once I started with the school district, again, they use a pay scale and I was getting 74, 74,000 around there when I started at the new district that was without a bilingual stipend or anything. Um, again, health, health and all the benefits that you would expect for a district. They give you medical benefits, dental vision, um, 10 PTO days a year, plus all the holidays that you get with all the kids. Um, I was work this district, I was working a few more days a year than the other one. Uh, they just had a longer work calendar. Um, so 74,000 a year was what I started at the other place. Um, but I was at a bilingual campus and not getting a bilingual stipend and it was a lot of work. And, um, I was like, I'm not going to see these bilingual kids and do these bilingual emails. I'm sorry. It's a lot. And I'm not getting compensated for it. Um, eventually, I did feel like because nothing was happening, I wasn't going to just leave kids without a bilingual therapist. So I saw them, you know, like and I did I did the therapy, but I did always um, push the evals out to like the bilingual district wide um, SLP so that she could do them because, um, I think towards the end of the year, there were a couple, and then again, that, that created more work because I had to consult with her and then call her and wait for her to come. And then again, quality of services for these kids was going down because now they're waiting two weeks to get seen by somebody and decide if we're going to get consent. And I felt like we did need to get consent, but the other therapist didn't feel like they did. So you're dealing with like so many factors, right? And it's like, at the end of the day, then I decided I'm just going to do what I need to do on my campus. I think it was like maybe in February where I decided I'm just going to do what I need to do and just take over these cases because I don't want to be waiting for people. And I don't want these kids to be waiting. And I, I just felt responsible. So I did. Um, I have a question. 
Yes. Just before we get too far away from it. So you weren't getting a bilingual stipend at this job. Did Mm -hmm. you think to negotiate that at the beginning? I did. And I asked and they said that it wasn't possible because they only had a space for one bilingual SLP position at the district based on their needs that the numbers that they ran and the numbers that they had based on their needs, they only needed one. And so there was no, like no basis to request a stipend. And I said, okay, that's fine. So then I'm just letting you know, I'm going to function as a monolingual SLP at this school. I am not going to do evals that are bilingual and I'm not going to do therapy that's bilingual. And so that's what I did. That's how I started um, not doing that. Um, but because, you know, we care and we're people who like want to help people. Then when it came down to it and I saw that it that it was taking longer or not not always like getting done, then I then I decided to just like go and do it, you know, because I knew I knew the other person was probably also swamped, you know. And so I'm like, so I figured if I keep track of how many evals I'm doing now that I'm doing them and how much time I'm putting into it, then I can advocate for a stipend the next year. So that's that's what I did. I kept track of the percentage of sessions that I was doing that were bilingual, and then the evals that I completed that were bilingual. And I think, and I wasn't just advocating for myself, I was also advocating for the other bilingual SLP who needed help, you know, like she was struggling. So um, I think that in the end, I, I mean, that's what I did. I kind of kept track of all of that information so that I could then come back and say something. Right. Um, so what you did was a time audit, That that's always a basically, good thing. Basically, yeah. A time mm-hmm. audit so you can negotiate later. So mm-hmm. with that negotiation process, um, I have a student who's bilingual. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a professor. So this is a a college student who's getting ready to graduate. And I told him that we were going to be doing this podcast. And Uh so um, we had a question together. Um, This might in Texas, this might be a thing, but up here in Ohio, we, we don't have these answers. We did. We're not sure Mm -hmm. what qualifies someone to be a bilingual therapist. Is is there a test you have to take? Do they just take your word for it? Um, How Mm -hmm. would a district or a company typically determine if someone qualifies to be a bilingual therapist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you could the, talk about, like, I know you got that certificate. Do you think it was worth it? Do you think we need something like that in our field? So yeah, just start talking. Yeah. So the first district that I worked for, I took like a proficiency test. Um, they, they, like they didn't require it at the interview. I think at the interview, there was someone bilingual there and they spoke to me and that's how they kind of knew that I was, I was fluent in Spanish. Um, so, and I was an assistant at the time. So all they needed me to do was speak it. Right. I didn't need to analyze or anything like that. Um, my new district didn't make me take a proficiency test, but, um, because I think I had that bilingual stipend and I had references who were like, you know, and I was like, I had been working in bilingual roles for so long. I don't, I don't think, I think it was obvious that I was like, you know, bilingual and fluent. Um, but they didn't have any kind of proficiency test that I needed to take or anything like that. In interviews that I've recently done, like with hospital systems and stuff, there was going to be a bilingual test that I had to take. 
Um, and, and I was perfectly comfortable with doing that. Um, so there's that. So some places use like some kind of proficiency test that you take to just verify that you are actually bilingual and how bilingual you are. Like some, some have a writing portion in there and some have a reading portion and a speaking portion. I think some have a listening. I've done all kinds of different ones. Um, for my master's program certification, it was specifically um, geared towards like Spanish speaking. No, was it? I can't remember if the other students in my class were like other bilingual, like with other languages. But we, I do remember we had to take a proficiency test for that program too, to, um, because some of the transcribing and all of that was in Spanish. A lot of it was in Spanish, so you had to be proficient. So we had to take that. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a, a way of measuring that people and, and, and organizations use like for employees. For the bilingual certification, I think the courses, and I say this with all the respect in the world for every bilingual SLP. There's a difference between someone who speaks Spanish and someone who is trained to be a bilingual SLP. I do, I do think that. Um, I do think there's value in getting the certificate. Um, I do think that ASHA should regulate a little more um, who it calls themselves a bilingual SLP and who doesn't. Um, there's a lot of analysis and thinking and knowledge that needs to go into qualifying and deciphering between a language difference and a language disorder. Um, even like in all areas, fluency, um, Arctic and language, a receptive and expressive. Um, I don't think it's enough to just speak the language. I think you need to understand the contrastive analysis of both languages to understand how to decipher. And I do think that someone who doesn't speak the language could be more skilled than if they were trained in bilingual assessment, I think even if you don't speak that language, you'd be more skilled than someone who is not trained and does speak the language. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, like I can look at um, bilinguistics is a really great resource for anyone, for any SLP, um, because they have these um comparative they have this book that's really great that has all kinds of languages arabic vietnamese um tagalog spanish even um african-american english and then they um kind of break down the differences in phonemes between the two languages the differences in grammar and some of the typical like patterns that you would see that are different from a English monolingual speaker and what is typical. Like for example, in Spanish, you would a lot of times emergent bilinguals would would sub emergent bilinguals would substitute th with a d. They might say dumb instead of thumb, or they might say dis instead of this. So if that child hears Spanish all day long and that's their dominant language even if they know English and they speak it, 
they might make those errors. I mean, my dad is a fluent English and Spanish speaker. He's been living here for 30 years and he still makes errors with subject verb agreement. Does that mean he has a language disorder? No, it's just a dialect difference, you know? Um, so That's I think oh, go ahead. there's value in understanding that um, and knowing how to do that analysis, that critical, like that critical thinking pattern that they teach you to use is super important. How much do you think cultural competency is a part of being a bilingual therapist? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, just for an example, like AAC, like um, I'm programming vocabulary and foods that are important to their culture. Um, if a kid doesn't eat burgers at home, I mean, there's, there, I have a student who had no idea what a burger was because she doesn't eat that at home, you know, so um, I'm not going to program it in her device. I'm going to change it, you know? So um, just being aware. And I think that that's a responsibility every, every professional has. It doesn't matter what your culture you're working with or what, because, you know, every culture is different. It doesn't matter which one it is. We, I think it's our responsibility as clinicians to be aware that there are those differences and ask those questions and have that pattern of thinking, Um but definitely when you're doing evaluations with new immigrant families, you're going to encounter things that are drastically different and situations. They might not be able to afford that thing that you're recommending. So think about it. Like, what are you recommending? They might not have manipulatives at home to practice multisyllable words. Talk about using beans, right? Like every Hispanic family has beans in their home you know, things like that, just simple things that you might not think about all the time, um, getting out of your box and thinking about that situation um, is important and necessary, especially in the eval sessions, like when they come in and um, like I've had certain encounters where, um, and they, in, in this certificate program, we had a cultural competency class where we talked about different cultures and different norms. We talked about how in some cultures, the male is considered the leader of the family. So you would address them with the questions. You have to respect their culture. That's the way that they function. And that's okay that it's different from our majority culture. Um, and there have been situations where, um, in the eval, the mom didn't speak as much and the father spoke for her. And um, even though it's different from my culture, um, I had to respect their structure of family, you know. Um, so I think that it's it's um, being aware that those change, those differences exist. Um, and that certificate program that I completed really did have a lot of things built into it that helped prepare you in that sense um, for those differences. So for that certificate program, um, mm -hmm. can you tell us how much you paid for grad school and did it cost extra for you to get that certificate? Oh, that's a tough, I didn't come prepared with these numbers. Um, I think did I pay extra for that? I don't know how to answer that question. I can't even remember, to be honest. My my tuition per year um, was based on like per semester. 
Um, and these classes were built into my semester. So I don't think that we pay like an additional fee. I think in the end, maybe like more for books, of course, because I had to buy more books. Um, and then the summer after we graduated, I had to do one more course and others didn't. So um, I think did, I did yeah. have to pay, yeah, pay a little more, maybe like couple thousand more but not more than three thousand more than what I would have paid for to go to grad school because the courses were built in I will say it was more stress I was taking more workload than everybody else during my my grad school program we were taking more credits at the time so um and I did like a, a May master um at one point I think in the end it maybe was like a, a few thousand dollars more but it was not much more than what I was already paying um so they for, worked it out to where it wasn't so much more and then of course books were more because right. we had to buy a new book every every course was a new book so for our listeners who might not understand how all of this works typically a graduate school will have however many hours that they consider full-time for a graduate student. Sometimes that's different than full-time for an undergrad. So mm -hmm. sometimes at universities, it's nine credit hours. Sometimes it's 12, sometimes it's 15. Um, so that's, if you're thinking about doing something like this, that's what you need to look at. How much is full-time? So if it's 12 hours, how many classes are being added to my semester? So for you, Addison, if it was 12 credit hours and you were taking 15, you were paying more. And again, you you have no idea because you haven't looked. But so someone thinking about that, just just be aware that that, that per credit hour is going to be tacked on to what you're already paying for full time. And then things like the May semester or the extra semester, that is also extra. There mm -hmm. are no electives in graduate school, so it's not like you're plugging these courses in somewhere. They're going to have to fit within whatever is that full-time load. And, you know, at some some semesters, maybe full-time is like, or I'm sorry, at some universities, maybe full-time is considered 12, but they only have you taking nine and that's still within the full-time. So then there is room to plug in there. Um, but that, um, I know I have an interdisciplinary specialization in aging. Um, I did not pay extra for that. So mm -hmm. any type of certificate coming from a university, that's, that's something to look at is, is there going to be a payoff at the end or a return on investment for what I'm spending now. And it, it sounds like in your case, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there is a return on investment in something like that, especially when you can get or negotiate a stipend. Yes. yes. For me, for my interdisciplinary specialization in aging, I didn't pay extra. But again, if I would have, um, I would not yet have seen in 10 years a return on that investment. I've never been paid more because I have that. Mm -hmm. So just an explanation and it, there. And it sounds like you you theoretically could still negotiate a stipend without that certificate. I you mean, can. You can. Like they didn't they didn't require it. I think it made it more credible, but they didn't require it, you know. Um, I also want to say for people listening, uh, you mentioned that maybe there should be some more regulation by ASHA. Mm -hmm. And I think all SLPs need to be aware that ASHA is a business that sells mm -hmm. a certificate. So they are regulated by the Federal Trade Commission. 
and they have credibility around their certificate because so many people buy it and so many people see value in it. Um, but they technically wouldn't have a business if people didn't buy into it and didn't see value in it. And legally, they cannot be anti-competitive with other certifications. So they can't regulate certifications because of the way it's a business structure and it's regulated by the federal government. So I just think that's something to keep in mind as SLPs is that when we are buying into certifications or certificates, whether it's ASHA's Certificate of Clinical Competency or any other certification or certificate, we are giving the power to that certificate by adding our name to it. Um, and we can't, I don't think that we can expect ASHA to regulate that because they're that's not their position. My wish is that there would be either SLPs would kind of decide how these things are regulated. And that's kind of what we do now by adding our names to these things, or there would be something outside of ASHA that would regulate all certifications, including the certificate of clinical competence. But that's a whole other conversation for another day. Yeah. <laughs> but couldn't ASHA regulate the competencies that are involved in a bilingual therapist, just like they regulate competencies for everything else? I do think that there's room for that. Like, I feel like you should, and also like there's a difference between having conversational proficiency and having enough proficiency to analyze the depths of language disorders. I mean, if you, if you were to barely speak English, would you be able to really analyze an English language sample to see if this is typical or not? So to me, I think there does need to be some more regulation because you could be kind of proficient and not truly understand the depths of the language if you're not highly proficient. Um, and I think that there's a problem when a whole entire population is getting lesser quality of evals, you know, and I, and this is to say, because we're so far and few in between bilingual SLPs are hard to come by. So you don't want to like run people away, but um, I do think that there should be some kind of regulation of, of who, who is like trained to be bilingual. And if they're not, can they get some training to be, you know, considered competent in that area? Um, and make I those trainings I mean, available. I think one way, Megan, correct me if I'm wrong. One way that this could be done as I'm just thinking about competencies is like in ASHA with the CAA, we have the big nine, right? Um, maybe adding a 10th mm -hmm. optional area. If you are someone like my student who knows he's bilingual, um, maybe add some additional competencies there that Again, not increasing the cost or, or, but maybe trying to find a clinical rotation for the externship or the internship that includes bilingualism or, or something like that, mm -hmm. that at the end, you know, ASHA or the CAA has these recommendations where, okay, you're, you're set up to be competent to be a bilingual therapist. And then that's something that you can use just like your other certificate. Um, to be more competitive, maybe, and I don't know, you can speak to this, um, if having those things on a job application or a resume would make you a little more competitive um, when looking for jobs. So 
it, this brings in so many other things because then you need faculty members who can oversee this, you know, but, you know, it's a, this is a good place to start the conversation, no better place than here. Um, but that is one way I think we could do it is this optional competency area. Yeah. And I think that this university did a really great job at creating this program because those requirements were built into the program. You had to have a certain number of hours that you completed in all big nine, all big nine areas had, you had to have some kind of amount of hours treating bilingual face-to-face treatment and eval in Spanish. Like you had to have bilingual hours. Um, It wasn't as many as you had to have for like your, you know, your full, um, grad school hours, but you had to have some hours and they had to be supervised by a bilingual SLP. And so you had that requirement built into the program. So you had the coursework, you had the externship hours, and it didn't have to be a bilingual externship, but you had to have hours accrued throughout the time. So I was very like super just extremely well-placed in my old district where there that district had lots of bilingual SLPs to choose from. So I had um, one, two, three different bilingual SLP supervisors throughout my grad school year where I was paired with them. No, it was like, yeah, three different, different SLP bilingual SLPs who have been working as bilingual SLPs for a long time. And they provided me the framework for bilingual analysis, resources for bilingual therapy. And they provided me mentorship on how to work with these families and how to communicate things to them. They provided supervision for the therapy, even the phonemes that you target and the the, the pattern of words that you char- target in a childhood who has a, a child who has apraxia and a, who speaks Spanish and who's one who speaks English are completely different. You can't target final consonants with a Spanish speaking child. There are not as many final consonants in Spanish. It makes no sense. So you're not going to do CVC words. You're going to do CVCV words. And I knew that I know that because I had those mentors and I had those hours and I had that experience built into the certificate program. Um, So I think it can be done because I saw it done. Um, And like I said, I, I would, I don't think that the answer is running people away. I think it's providing the, the training to the existing people and provide the training to even monolingual SLPs to understand this because I have a f- friends who don't speak Spanish and they come to me, but they can use an interpreter and they can provide that quality eval with the interpreter if they don't have a bilingual SLP in their area who speaks that language. And they come and they ask me like, hey, do you have this? Do you have that? Oh, I remember from this class that you told me we shouldn't target final consonants with Spanish speaking kids. Do you have a list of words that I can use with the interpreter that I can give the parents? And, and that is like, a whole new like open door, you know, because they had that exposure um, to people who understand it, to SLPs who understand it, and to a program that respected it, which I think is is really important to note. Yeah, that's amazing. That certificate sounds amazing. As I'm sitting here listening to you talk, I'm thinking the only thing too with a little more regulation becomes an access issue. 
right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, in, in places like Northeast Ohio, we mm-hmm. don't have those bilingual therapists to be sending right. our students to, but man, there, there's gotta be a way to figure it out. Yeah. There's gotta be some solutions. Um, so, I mean, I think, I don't know. I, I think there's a way, um, I don't know exactly what that way would be for every state. Cause I do realize, you know, Texas is, is its own thing. I mean, we've got lots of bilingual populations here. We've got lots of bilingual clinicians here. Um, but I do think that there could be some solutions. I, I don't know what those are for every state, but um, I do think that that, that idea of adding like another area is kind of, a good another big nine one of the big nine areas is kind of nice um it's a good idea another way to do it is the the board certifications which are quasi very Mm -hmm. quasi regulated by asha and those are run usually by nonprofit ish organizations um and so trying to make it like an online access nonprofit quasi regulated board certification could be another route but we have a very limited amount of time left because we have Mm -hmm. another coming up. So I want to, I want to talk about how much you're making at your current job. Um, because I know you switched to, is, is it a fee for service? Is that what it is? Yeah. Fee for service. Uh-huh. That's a hot topic. So I know people will be very interested in what you're making there and what you negotiated and how that works. And then I want to wrap up with some rapid fire questions that we're asking everybody and just make sure we get those in. Sure. So, keep yeah. Plugging so- away. I made the choice to do fee for per service. I had the option of doing salary at some clinics and then also hourly, but more guaranteed pay at hospitals. Um, So I got offered from a big system hospital here in Houston, a rate of $40 an hour, um, which I feel is extremely low. That's lower than my hourly rate that I was getting paid if I were to divide my salary per day's worked um, at the school. I, I, I think it was like 51 this year. It would have been 52 next year. So that's substantially lower. Um, that was the lowest offer I got from the other hospital, big system hospital that I interviewed at. I got an offer of a range between 48 and 52, which I felt was more fair. Um, so that's just to give you an idea. That's what the hospitals gave. Another private clinic offered a salary, like a base salary of, I think it was like 90K a year, and then opportunities for earning biannual bonuses, which I think was great. They had a lot of other great benefits, um, like four-day weeks and then um, additional PTO days and um, benefits. Like every, you know, I think they they had a lot of really great things. It just didn't work out logistically for me. That's why I didn't, I didn't take that. In any um, of those offers, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. In any of those offers, and I know you may not have negotiated with them, did it include a stipend since this is our topic? Did it include a bilingual stipend? It did not include a bilingual stipend, but I was I was one of the reasons why I was going back and forth with one of the hospital systems was because I was bilingual. And I was like, you're offering me a rate that is really low and I'm bilingual and you're going to use those skills right now. You're paying for an interpreter to come to these sessions. So you're paying six. I know you're paying 40 to $60 an hour for that person to come do that translation. So if you think I'm going to take this rate that you're offering a new grad with zero experience who does not speak Spanish, I'm sorry, but this is not my first rodeo and I'm not doing it. So um, that's where I was kind of like, 
I'm not taking that offer. You've got to come up like, sorry, no, that's not going to work out for me. Um, you know, so that was kind of where I was negotiating the hourly rate to be higher when I was talking to those hospital systems because I was because I was bilingual and because I had experience. It just wasn't hospital experience. And the position that I was applying for wasn't an, an acute care. It was outpatient. So I was like, I'm sorry. No, I have experience. Like you can count it or this just isn't going to work for me. Um, so I think there's space for without a stipend. I mean, you can negotiate your hourly rate to be higher because you're doing those skills that they would have paid somebody else to do, you know? So, um, and if you're doing therapy every day with a bilingual client, that's one session at least one or two sessions a day, you'd have to hire an interpreter for normally. So um, I think it's fair to ask for a much higher rate hourly than what you're given. The salary clinic that that um, I hadn't negotiated anything because I wasn't planning on taking it. So I didn't even felt, I felt it was, there was no need to negotiate for something when I wasn't planning on seriously considering it. So I didn't even, um, I didn't even, negotiate at all. Um, but she did give me, I think, a good offer. Um, and I don't know that I would have negotiated much, to be honest, because I felt that what she was offering me was was fair. Um, and I felt that she was not lowballing me, per se. You know, um, I felt that what she was offering was good. Um, so I chose to take this per fee service, fee, fee per service, position is that how you say it um for service I yeah know. There, I, I don't know um I chose to take this position um and asked for a higher rate um because I have experience because um there were some not as much PTO time involved because it's you know fee for service and then also because I'm bilingual so um there are also other skills that I have I'm very trained in assistive technology AAC in general I have a lot of training in that um I've kind of I would say taken up those two areas as like specialties I guess um and this specific clinic was interested in developing those two things they had never had a bilingual SLP they never had you know somebody who was skilled in AAC so I felt that bringing those two skills, I had a place to ask for more. So I asked for um, uh, a fee of 58 per session, um, per hour session. Um, and I think that that is fair for what I'm, for what I'm offering. Um, and that's what I got. So I asked for it and she didn't even try to negotiate me down. And that in itself, the fact that she came back um, giving me what I asked for, um, that was another motive for me to take that position because I felt like she valued what I was offering. And I gave her the reasoning very upfront because I have this, because I have this skill, because I have this skill, because I'm offering you this skill, because I'm going to bring this to your clinic. This is what I'm asking for. Um, it was very, you know, and I said, I am losing, like I'm getting paid $52 an hour. And I'm also getting XYZ benefits. I'm getting PTO. I'm getting this. I'm getting that, which I'm not getting with this other place. So, you know, I'm offering you all these skills and I'm willing to let go of some of these other things, but then you've got to come up on your rate a little bit to, you know, to offset that. 
Um, and I think we came to a very fair agreement. Um, I'm still going to be able to get um, full-time employee benefits with her. Of course, PTO time is is not the same as when you were working for a salary-based job, but I had the potential to earn a lot more money. Um, so when I did the, the math, um, even if I were to take four weeks off during the year unpaid um, and work a four-day week, I'm still working the same number of days I would have worked at a school district for a salary job. And you know what? I'm not staying till five working for free. Every every session that I take, I'm getting paid more for. So um, I, the harder I work, the more money I make. And um, I felt that that was where I wanted to. I wanted to take my my next step to is what that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I'm okay with the. I, I know that there's some hesitation with those kinds of jobs because you want to take what's stable and you want to take what's secure. Um, but sometimes security isn't isn't worth it when you're not getting paid what you're worth. Um, and so I'm now in a place where I'm getting married. I'm going to have a double income household and I and I have that other um, security blanket, I guess, of like my future spouse. We're going to have a double income. I don't have that pressure of being single and being the only income anymore. Um, so I felt like I was in a perfect place in my life to make that change. Excellent. Thank you. That's all fantastic information. Super helpful. Are you ready for a rapid fire? Yes. Oh, let's start with um, how much is Target paying per hour where you live so we can get a sense of cost of living? So I don't know about Target, but I know Academy, which is like a sports store, is paying like I want to say 13 per hour. Okay. And then how much is a gallon of gas at your nearest gas station? Like three something, three and some change. And then how much is a two bedroom house that you would want to buy selling for on average? Okay. So I looked at this, a two bedroom house would be that's nice in a nice area with good school districts. Now is like, 280, 300 around there, between 280 and 320. Okay. Um, what do you think you should be paid? Um, what I'm getting paid now, 58 per hour. I think that's fair. And, and how much did you pay for grad school? My, well, so once I, once I remember, so my tuition per semester, I believe was I want to say it was 8,000. How many semesters? So it was, no, it was per year. Per year was 8,000. Because I'm like, that doesn't even make sense. 8,000 would have been too much. Um, so I would, I'm sorry, was that a question that you prepared, asked me to prepare and I didn't prepare? That's okay. That's okay. You can give a rough. So maybe <laughs> yeah. somewhere between like 16 and 20,000. Probably. Yeah. A little less than 20. Yeah. Not more than 20. Very low. That's very low for grad school. It's very low. Yes. It was very low, which is why I went there. <laughs> um, and I was yeah. able to work full time. Yeah, it was, it was extremely low. I remember when I looked at the cost because I applied at multiple schools, this was the lowest that I was going to pay. Um, you have, this program is, I believe it started off as structured for SLP assistants who are working in the schools, wanting to become SLPs to work in the schools. So it was partially subsidized by some kind of 
program, which is why it was cheaper. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. okay. What advice do you have for other SLPs when it comes to applying for jobs and negotiating salary, especially to include that bilingual stipend? Um, I think when you're applying places, looking at, well, when you're applying places, I think it's fair to apply anywhere. But when you go to an interview, I think one of the things that I, is super important to ask is, um, I think when you go into the interview, know how much work goes into being a bilingual SLP. You, it's a lot of work. So that work deserves to be compensated. If that person is not even aware of the differences, make them aware. Like, because I'm going to be doing bilingual evals, I have to test in two languages. I have to translate the documents. I have to, you know, come up with therapy materials and provide coaching to the parents in their native language and also provided in my, in my native English language that I'm doing here in the clinic. So I think translating materials, all of that stuff, making them aware, this is why I'm asking for, you know, and in the market rate is X, Y, 55 an hour. This is why I'm asking for 58 an hour or 60 an hour, whatever. The market rate for a clinic was, I think it was like 53 around here. Like a clinic would pay somebody 53 about an hour for fee for service. So I asked for more because I'm doing all these other things. And also on top of that, I'm doing AAC stuff too. So um, I think knowing what any SLP would get paid around your area. And I think that applies for any specialization. If you have special skills in something and that they're going to use those at that place that you're applying to, know what everyone else is getting paid around your area and then ask for more um, because you're offering a service that no one else can give. You have that skill. So That's you should be compensated. Thing. And before we wrap up, I'm um, adding a negotiating tip at the end of every episode. And you just like gave my whole tip for the day. It was <laughs> perfect. Um, my tip for today was build your case. Build mm -hmm. your case before you walk to that table to negotiate. I recommend um, if you're doing it verbally, still make a bullet point list of every skill that you have. You can include your certifications, although especially in the medical world, those aren't always helpful, but you should still point them out. Um, something else that you should do if, if you are a clinician who has been working, if you're moving, something I did when I moved um, from the East Coast back to Ohio was I looked at the cost of living differential. Um, so I was getting an offer that was very low. And I said, look, this is what I was making at the last position, even with the adjustment lower for cost of living, you're still paying me X, Y, and Z less. Like this is the pay cut I would be taking. So you want to talk about your skills. You need to look at the area for cost of living. And there's simple calculators online for that. Um, and, and put it all on paper, how long you've been working, the experience that you bring. And, and, um, be confident when you're having those discussions. You don't need to be pushy or negative. You can be very positive and present those things either verbally or in writing um, to help you justify why you're asking for what you're asking. And you hit the nail on the head. We um, find out what the going rate is in the area. That was the number one tip um, in our, our first podcast. And then ask for more because you're bringing all of these other things to the table. Um, and if you're asking 
almost always like for you, it, they gave it to you, but many times they're not going to give you what you're asking. They're going to go a little lower. So if you're, if you're asking for the going rate, you might get something less. So always ask for more. So that's the tip for today. Um, build your case. This is a lot more difficult. If you are a brand new clinician going into a CF, um, there's, there's not a lot of room to build your case as a year one brand new clinician. But if you have a year or more in, um, even asking, I wrote down, even asking for those steps too is something else that, you know, the one job gave you all of the credit for the years earned. So even if it's a union job where there are steps, um, you can still ask for credit um, for the work that you have in. So that's my tip for today. Cool. So you're going to get compensated for being uh -huh. with us today. Uh -huh. So we're getting sponsors and all of the okay. sponsorship money is getting split in half. So okay. half is going to go to you and half is going to go to the NISLA chapter of your choice. Okay. Definitely UT Austin. That's where I went to college. So. Okay. So UT Austin is going to be getting a donation um, on behalf of, oh, just cut that out. Wait, I'll say it again. <laughs> Okay, so UT Austin is going to be getting a donation on behalf Yay. of Addison. Their NISLA chapter has some money coming, so that's really exciting. Yay, Huckam Horns. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Addison, for your time and your transparency and for um, sharing so much helpful information. I think it's, it's the kind of conversation that's going to help all SLPs negotiate better and bring us all up. So thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Great. I learned so much. This was, this was a great conversation. Thank you for being here with us today. Of course. Thank you guys. Next time on Other SLPs Pockets. I took a big pay cut to come to my current hospital. Um, my CF paid $36 an hour, which I thought was good at the time, but now know that it's still not enough. Um, and I was a CF, so I was just psyched. I'd gotten other offers for like $29 an hour, 24. So yeah. And I really wanted to come back to the one, um, that I currently work at. I'd done an internship there and, um, I was willing to take a pay cut for that. If you like this podcast, please be sure to share it with your SLP friends and continue the dialogue together. The more of us that are having these types of open conversations, the more likely it is that we're all going to be paid what we're worth. If you would like to connect with Jeanette and me, you can reach us via email at hello at otherslpspockets.com. You can also find us on Instagram at otherslpspockets. Pockets.